Mysterious World with Pablo Amira and Stuart Palm. Join us as we connect across time and space, exploring the mysteries of our world and your world. In this episode of Mysterious World, we have a guest. It's our first guest is the amazing performer Johnny Fox. Johnny Fox is a sword swallower and storyteller and magician who um, I met long ago in New York at his Freakatorium, which was a space you'd go to and see his collection of shrunken heads and strange objects and curiosities from all over the world. Uh, he had uh, Sammy Davis Jr.'s glass eye. He had uh, one of the stuffed giant rats from the the movie The Princess Bride. He had uh, old photographs of oddities from around the world, and he would be there himself as an oddity and uh, perform Blockhead, which would be hammering a, a stake into his nose or uh, swallowing swords. He's a, one of the world's best performing sword swallowers and he's in festivals all over the time uh all over the world and uh he does the maryland renaissance festival which he'll be doing soon and uh through october and uh, he'll give the dates at the end of the the recording here um johnny's a great guy he uh he's actually a a personal friend as well but but more of my family than uh myself uh to begin with he met my parents through a space that they have in Florida that is an uh, off-the-grid space. It's a house that um, is on on stilts in the swampland, in the, the wetlands, and you can only get to it by taking a boat about an hour from the mainland uh, through the wetlands and to this house that we call the Swamp House. And uh, Johnny befriended, I think through his performances at the beaches in Florida, he would do sort of a street magic performance and street sword swallowing performance. And he met uh, the guy who co-owns this house with my parents. And I had already left for college when he started to visit it regularly. But my sister would tell these stories of meeting this man who did these amazing things and would do stuff like pretend to take out his eye and it would explode at a at a diner. You know, just interesting, funny, magical experiences and show his collections of odd things. Uh, and they would go to Gibsonton, which is the sort of town of freaks in Florida. It's where um, it it's where off work uh, circus performers would live in Florida back in the day when there was the Ringling Brothers uh, circus. Well, there still is the Ringling Brothers circus, but when it would uh, go by train out of out of Sarasota, the uh, the the, the sideshow performers and workers, many of them lived in Gibsonton, and the reason is because the the zoning of the city was set up so that they could have things like elephants and giraffes in their houses. A very interesting place to see. And yeah, um, very and so at the Swamp House, they have uh, Johnny gave them a giant uh, sideshow banner of uh, a gorilla 
and uh, there's some strange things around. Um, but I didn't meet him there, although he knew my family, but they told me, go, go visit this guy. You will get along great. And we do. Um, and so I went into the frigatorium and saw him and we became friends then. So I, I, uh, talked to him every once in a while about odd things in the world and, uh, being a performer and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Johnny Fox. Antwerp, Antwerp. This morning, this friend of mine, he's uh, he has a collection of of skulls and mummies and that kind of thing that um, he's had it, the display uh, shown in Paris at museums where they've taken apart his collection and they've recreated it in the exact way it's displayed in his home. Nice. This is not Shellman, is it? Who's that? Uh, no, 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 no. We we met Shellman. No, this guy. This guy is like probably the number one guy in the world. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Is I mean his his stuff makes his this collection is ins- unbelievable. It's about a hundred and close to one hundred and sixty skulls. Not one of them is. Uh, just normal <laughs> but they're trepanated with you know with holes in them and some of them yeah. have had gold uh pieces put over the trepanations and then the skull grew over that yeah and he's got wow. elongated ones and uh flat uh you know the, the the flat head forehead ones right um hydrocephalic um just all kinds of deformities um and what brought him to uh be a skull collector um anthropologist you know the guy's just uh he likes to go out and scratch the earth he as he says you know and and see things and find things and um we met years ago when i had the freakatorium in manhattan and we had a mutual friend, Bill Jameson, who had uh, purchased the Niagara Falls Museum, which had in its collection the mummy of Ramses I, who was grave robbed from the Valley of the Kings back in the 1840s, I think it was. Wow. And made his way to to Niagara Falls. And then uh, when... When my friend purchased the Niagara Falls Museum, he sold off the uh, Egyptian collection, and it it went to Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and they returned Ramses to uh, Egypt, and in exchange, they provide them with um, a nice selection of loaned items nice. for their Egyptian for their Egyptian collection yeah well that, that's nice of them I, I I'm uh, very happy that uh, Egypt is getting back some of its stuff so our topic today um, for the mysterious world is talking to the dead dead talking back communicating with the dead in all the ways that that that's done around the world in here in in Asia ancestral worship is still sort of in existence most of the 
temples around uh, people are in some ways praying to ancestors and um, there's a lot of cool ritual here involving people who've passed on um, do the skulls that you were talking about do they have some sort of existence in that kind of a tradition maybe they did at one time but I, I mean I, I think uh, whatever energy that was with them as far as spirit, their spirits I think it's prob that that energy is probably relocated uh, on some other plane of existence. Right. I would say, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that energy gets trapped. That's my own personal feeling, but um, yeah. Well, I mean, there is a if you see a skull, it has an inherent ability to remind you of death and and also remind you if you know who that person was who that person is so there is something there even on yeah. that level um sure yeah I, I i would i guess so yeah but i'm, I'm thinking uh, you know how were these skulls kept to begin with uh so uh, in terms of a mummy if you have a mummy the mummy generally unless it was you know trapped in a bog if it was a, an egyptian mummy it was prepared to be able to live on and it's part of a ritual and a practice of allowing that soul to go on to the other side so it has a reason for existing as a mummy but these skulls if you have a collection of skulls some of them might be for scientific purposes but others might be in some form of ritual or you know, why why are they still around and not buried somewhere is my question so, some of them were buried in uh Doug Hub. yeah yeah like I think one of the one of the uh, exhibits he has in his his house is a uh, it's a Peruvian mummy that um, I, I don't know he may have found it himself. They go out in the desert and they have probes that are like quarter inch steel pipe, and they just push them down. And they have a they have a T handle on one end, and they go around through the desert and they push them and. Uh, all of a sudden, if it just goes down really f super fast, that's a s signal that there's probably a uh, a burial chamber, and cool. It's very you know so so very delicately they start digging from far far enough out so when they get to it it doesn't collapse and so they're able to photograph it and see how see what kind of objects are in there and and he, actually he took he took one apart and reconstructed it in his home and <laughs> this, is, this guy's home is insane i mean uh, you're yeah, walking up you're walking upstairs and uh all of a sudden there's this it's like a shadow box but it's in a wall and it goes back about um, three or four feet and it's and it's probably three or four feet square and within it, there's a a mummy, uh, and Peruvian mummies are they're kind of crouched. They're not laid out lengthwise. They're they're kind of crouched with their knees up, and sometimes yes. their arms are wrapped around their legs, and their fingers are uh, kind of laced together, and and they still have all the skin on them because they dry out so fast. They're not. There's no need to prepare them. Like they did in Egypt. Um, so yeah, the body. Peru is not so far from you, uh, Pablo. Have you have you experienced Peruvian mummies? Yeah, yeah. And as you said, because Peru is very near to Chile, 
they are basically the same mummies in Chile as well. Oh yeah. As, yeah, yeah. As Johnny said, the the position is very different from the Egyptian one. So you can see that are very very well preserved, and even they have hair, and the skin is is. It's very uh, clear and obviously not green in the color, but but for the age that has is is a very amazing discovery. What was the reason for keeping these mummies? Are they just uh, it's a burial ritual of normal people, or is it something in particular? Well, as far as I know, the cosmovision of the Incas, the Aztecas, and and similar cultures are also very related to death and and keeping the the ancestors alive right and and especially when the death of the person was very tragical for example or, or not not maybe tragical but uh, important for example for sacrifices when the monks eat the heart of the sacrifices of uh, all um, young ladies virgin ladies they they sometimes keep it as a mummy right so it has a, a meaning in the culture. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also in Mexico, Guanajuato is famous for the mummies. Um, that's a different, that's a different style there of uh, preparation. And they're, and they're usually in the, the, I think they're around the cathedrals. Uh, so they're associated with like the, the, the churches and, uh, you know about this? You know about Guanajuato? I've heard of it, but I don't really know anything. Mm-hmm. The, at the beginning, the, the culture of South America was was very strong and and very connected. For example, there's a there's a way that a path that is called the um, Incas path. I I don't know the exact uh, the uh, translation, but it's the it was a, a complete path from north. To South in in whole America, and they have very good connection and communication with different tribes. So, for example, as we talk in the first and second episode, the Mapuches were were also connected with the Incas and Aztecas through that path, to, through that way. So, the the cultures and and different cultures about the different countries were also connected. So. As we can see now, the the traditions uh, and mummifications are are also shared. And Mapuches don't don't use that type of mummification, but we can see how amazing is connected the Egyptian culture, for example, with this type of South American culture in which mummification is part of the is part of the culture. I've also seen some interesting stuff where there's um, cross similarities between. Uh, native North and South American things and ancient Egyptians that are quite astonishing. It's an interesting, just all the ways that ancient cultures have dealt with death and the story of crossing over to some other realm. I'm amazed at how similar some of it really is. Yeah. But is that really death or is it just respect of, uh, of that energy? I mean, why even call it death? <laughs> True. I mean, like, uh, the American Indians, like when going to their um, sweat lodges and their sweat ceremonies, they would uh, re- they would refer to the, the the rocks, the stones, as the the grandmothers and grandfathers. Yeah, uh, 
and uh, and usually when people speak in a inside of when people take turns speaking in uh, inside of a a sweat lodge, um, they it's usually they start off with all my relations is the first thing that comes out of your mouth is to all my relations respect giving respect to all that all all one's relations right i yeah. I, I did a ritual with a, a sioux uh, medicine man once where everything started by saying a how which was giving respect to even the the floor and the chair and you kind of did that with everything that was involved before you started which I think might be similar or the same thing that you're talking about of giving respect. Just just respecting the earth and nature is uh, something we've lost uh, that would yeah. be nice to find a way to get back. And don't only lose respect by the fact of omitting the, the, the entity of nature, but also damaging the nature with, with neoliberalism and this capitalism style of business and economy, they are destroying everything. Yeah. yeah uh, one of the things my friend said over in, uh, in Belgium right now, he says there's a huge problem with all these Muslims coming over from, from Africa and Turkey and all over. He says there's like thousands of people, they come in, and they don't know where to put them. So it's like, it's just like, this huge influx of uh, of Muslims coming in, refugees, yeah, yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen there. Well, I was just having a discussion with uh, with uh, we were talking about you know what we can do to help people. Um, work, working in Renaissance festivals for the last thirty five years, uh, uh, there's a woman who does an act uh, with with some other girls. They call themselves the Washer Wenches, and she's uh, she's pretty good at putting together projects to go out and reach out to the community. And I think they did, they just did one in Flint, Michigan, and they bring a bunch of people from the festival and people that are artists and uh, actors and face painters. And they go in for a day to uh, shelters and, and they'll do face painting for the kids and wash people's feet and hands and hair and braid their hair and do different things just to, just give them a lot of attention and help them feel better about themselves. And uh, we're talking about getting all the other Renaissance festivals to adopt it and get it going all over the country. That's great. What do they call it? That's a good. That's a good question. I don't think we have. We don't have a name for it yet. But yeah, I'll keep yeah. you posted. Um, yeah, keep- and yeah, and if it can get picked up, so that the thing, like after the festival leaves town, that the people of the uh, area can keep it going that would be great too so why don't um just because we need an introduction to, to you johnny um the the reason i thought you'd be great for this podcast and and um talking about mysteries and people uh the way rituals of the dead is that you have a um wonderful collection of oddities from the freakatorium are you still call is the collection still called the freakatorium um, Freakatorium is still the name of the collection. It's still a, it's still a, a working uh, business name that I use for for my business as a sword swallower, magician, storyteller. I continue to collect, not as aggressively as I used to, but um, you know, every 
every few years I, I may add one really nice piece to the collection if i if i find something that's really nice um uh but i and i look and i ask uh, not not as aggressively as I used to. So I used to have a yes, I used to have a, a museum in New York City from excuse me, 1998 to 2000 and 2005. It was seven years, yeah, 1998 to 2005. It was on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, called Fricatorium El Museo Loco, and it was a cabinet of curiosities with, and we had a, a shrunken had a couple shrunken heads in there, uh, the, a mummy's head. Uh, but a lot of uh, vintage photography of human anomalies from the 1800s and people that worked in what were called dime museums that existed on the Bowery. And it was the first entertainment that came to the United States in the, in the 1860s. And museums were pretty much like the diffusion of knowledge, educational centers that uh came out of uh, wealthy wealthy families had collections and then right. start, and then so slowly it would stay would be shown in uh, bigger collections there was the American Museum in Manhattan which housed some things like mummies and skulls but I've been fascinated with this kind of stuff and the Mutter Museum has always been a favorite of mine in Philadelphia. It's the yeah, Philadelphia College of Surgeons. Yeah. Yeah, there's a huge collection of skulls there. The first time I was at the Freakatorium, uh, what I remember, um, other than I think you hammered a nail up your nose, um, <laughs> is spike. Uh, a spike. It's a spike, yes, a not sp a nail. A spike, not a nail. And I remember the shrunken heads. I remember uh -huh. the rodent of unusual size that was over the door from the Princess Bride movie. Right. And I remember um, the photograph of Melvin Burkhart that was on, on the wall. I remember Sammy Davis Jr.'s eye. You had his eye in there. That got more attention, I think, than... It was the only thing in the collection that wasn't mine. It was a... A piece that was on loan from another guy who lived in the Lower East Side, and and then there was an old flicker movie. You stick wow. your it was like a nudie girl dancing around or something. You put a quarter in it or something like that. Oh yeah, it's called a mutoscope. Recently, I've been looking at uh, other reels to buy to put inside of it, and I've been debating whether to buy one of a hanging scene. And I'm ooh, I'm a little. It's a little bit grisly, but. But I think it's it, it's more fitting than uh, than a, a stripper or a dancing girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. And then there's another one that's of a, a boxing match that might be um, Jack Dempsey. I'm fascinated by those old uh, amusement stuff that came uh, items that came from the. 1700s, 1800s. Yeah, 1700s is really rare to see anything from then. But yeah, the 1800s, more stuff had sur survived that, but not too much. One of, the th one of the pieces I was just moving around upstairs is a uh, hair art, memorial hair art. Yeah, I was just about to mention hair art uh, because I think that's 1700s, isn't it? Or is it early 1800s? Um, early 1800s. I mean, there's, there very well could be. Um, 
stuff from the 1700s. Right. But this is a huge masterpiece. It looks like, and, and there's a an area of France, Lille, France, where they pretty much, I think that's where the uh, the highest art form of hair art I think existed and somebody made this whole scene of a barber shop and there's like seven or eight people and it's braided hair it's ground hair wow flattened hair with egg whites in it <laughs> yeah uh, I'd love to see a picture of that do you have a photo of it I do I can I can get a photo up there cool hair uh, I, i've seen hair um made into parts of jewelry and and inside of jewelry and woven yes. into different things like that I've, i don't think i've seen it as a as a tableau scene like a full picture no that's what makes this piece really unusual i had to pay very dearly for it you know there's a there's a show that's called uh, obscura antiques or there's a shop in new york city obscura yep. they, had a, they had a show on television that ran for a few yep. years um, anyway, the girl, Evan, she threw a party years ago and uh, when I had the Freakatorium and went over to her, her place in New Jersey and I saw that piece on the wall and I, and I was thinking out oh, of all the things in her house, the thing that I really loved the most was that, that tableau scene of, in hair art. And I told her, if you ever sell it, contact me first. And a few years went by and she told me, she says, you know what, I'm kind of sad that I have to sell this. And, uh, my dog tried to attack a pit bull and my dog got its skull crushed pretty much. And she had about $5,000 of uh, dental of uh, doctor bills that she had to pay. And so we ended up coming up with a price. And But, you know, one of the things I was I was thinking would was it would be appropriate for this is there's the, the Tibetan book of living and dying. And the mm-hmm. Tibetans are a very fascinating culture with uh, their their take on uh, death and re- a couple of years ago my mom passed away and I gave her a book a few years before she passed away called though uh, called graceful exits and and then uh, when she was ready to go she said you know I'm not afraid she said I wish people would leave me alone let me die I went I went down to New Jersey to visit her and uh, after she had passed away and I was using some sage outside the the place. She wanted to have her body left sitting for four or five days without it being touched. Um, and so they left her eyes open. And and then on the f- about the fifth day is when they uh, cremated her there because they, you know, the body will start to smell after a while. Anyhow, I went outside and as I was sm- I was waving uh, sage smoke. I looked up in the sky above the funeral home and the sky was dark, pitch dark. A storm was coming in, but there was a hole that was like a perfectly circular hole, looked like about the size of a basketball from where I was standing. And I could see the sunset behind the clouds. And it was cool. the only spot in the whole sky that had a hole and it was like this it was so so close to perfectly circular and and so i just looked up and i said hey nice exit mom (laughs) nice and uh yeah so i i really do you know i definitely believe that uh the deceased spirits communicate with us in subtle ways and i have no no problem believing that 
I do too. And whether or not it's a a conscious thing or something that exists on a sort of unconscious level or through pick, you know, metaphors or some sort of feeling. I, I still believe it's real. Um, and I've had some experience. Like, have you had, have you had direct experiences where you communicated with some form of spirit where you, you know, that's what you've decided it was. Does that make sense? Oh uh, yeah. I mean, come, I mean like, We've all played with, with I, I imagine we've all played with Ouija boards. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, it, it, I'm doing that, that as a kid, and I, I don't continue to do that, and I don't get carried away with that. Um, one of the things, I mean, the Grim Reaper, that the, uh, the statue or the, the effigy of the Grim Reaper is something that's uh, very widely... Uh, accepted in Mexico and respected. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, you know, no, none of us get out of here alive. Right. <laughs> so, you know, making friends with uh, death or whatever that energy is that accompanies us when we, uh, when we leave. The kiss of death. The kiss of death. <laughs> I had an interesting experience the uh, morning of my wedding. Um, the morning of my wedding, I was in that state of mind, lying in bed, where I knew I needed to get up and prepare things for the day, and you know, get my tuxedo ready and make sure everything was good. You know, all that stuff you need to do for an important occasion. And I slipped back into a dream state while lying there, sort of mulling over and ruminating on what I needed to do. And the dream state I went into uh, was one of those sort of vision-y dream states where I was still in my room. So I had... I One of those dream states where when you pop out of it, you weren't sure if you were asleep or awake. And uh, in this state of mind, this sort of half-awake, half-sleep, both my aunt and my grandmother, who who had passed on, uh, came in the room. And, um, and my grandmother had passed on a few years before. My, my aunt had had only the last year before passed on. And they came in and they said what that they were telling me, that they wanted to, you know, wish me well on my wedding day and that's why they were visiting me wow and and then they my grandmother um proceeded to make jokes about how funny it is that they came and yet my mother's parents weren't there like (laughs) like that sort of you know grandparent rivalry (laughs) like well here we are and yet they were so christian where are they um, which, which, which I, I thought, and so I kind of woke myself out of that state of mind by laughing, which really started the day very well for me. But, uh, I could, if I'd wanted to, I could decide that that was my own mind creating something to, you know, but I don't, I don't believe that. I, I, that was very real. It was a very real experience and it, and it really made the day. It really started it well. So yeah, that's the most important, right? That really affects you in a positive manner. Yeah, exactly. Very yeah. interesting. I, I I had also an an interesting 
experience about that, not for myself, but rather for my mother. She had a uh, out of body experience when she she had my first sister, my older sister, and it's, it's a basic story, but but very near to me because she was almost deaf. She she started to feel her her soul, if you will, uh, start to float about uh, above her body in the hospital. And then she she felt uh, like a, a a powerful energy that put her inside a, again of the body, and, and she came to life. Hopefully, <laughs> cool. Have yeah. you ever experienced an out of body experience, uh, Johnny? Sure. Um, I mean, I used to have this reoccurring dream as a child where. I'd be sleeping and astral projecting and looking down at my body laying in bed and a, a witch would come in to, come into my bedroom and go underneath the bed and lift the bed up and then take my bed out the door, walk down the stairs in the house and I would be astral projecting this whole scene, seeing this and and then she would open the 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 door to the basement and throw the the bed down, with me on it down into the basement and I would wake up right then. And I, I had that dream uh, several times as a child and then I had it again. I, I never had the dream again for probably, I don't know, 35 years, 30 years or so. And then uh, again, I had it. I remember having it one more time probably when I was in my 40s. Wow. But what, did, what did the witch look like? I couldn't see her. She was under the bed. <laughs> okay, you just knew she was a witch. She came in, and I just, I just remember dark. It was a dark, uh, a dark image that with long hair. Maybe it was kind of like a collie image that was kind of like come in, go under the bed, and but you know the collie. I, I used to think about Kali as uh, you know the the, the goddess Kali, mm-hmm. Kali Ma they Kali. call her, yep. uh, is is also the uh, the symbolism of the tongue, the red tongue hanging out is uh, is as I was educated to understand that, that that that's a symbol of compassion. She's the compassionate mother, and but she. Uh, she she kills the greed and uh, chaos and this this time that we're living in now is is uh, Kali Yuga they call it Yugas make up thousands of years and it's kind of similar to seasons there you know, as we go through different Yugas this is a uh, this is a cosmology I'm not familiar with uh, so so Kali Yuga would be now and so we are in a time of greed and chaos greed chaos. that evil. makes sense yeah yeah and then you know it's and it's kind of like can be equated to fall where it looks like everything is dying and leaves are falling from the trees and and, go, and then there's a state of dormancy and then springtime comes along again and everything is Growing. Beautiful. When is when is Kali Yuga over? Do we do we know that? Yeah. Can we get through this fucking thing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, it's if you if you look it up, I mean, you can check it out. Yeah, I will. Uh, 
Y-U-G-A. Um, I think we're past the halfway point of it, you know, which is we're over the hump of it. And, but like I say, it's there are thousands of years. A yuga is consistent is consisting of thousands of years. Right. Yeah. Oh, I was also I was going to mention um, Los, Los Dia de los Muertos. One year I went down to uh, Mexico. This is a this is little Lake Patsquaro and uh, it's uh, uh, Guadalajara. Well, the Guadalajara area is where they really celebrate the Day of the Dead, probably the strongest in Mexico. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they go out and they spend the they'll spend a whole the people spend a whole night with uh, with their dead relatives out in the cemeteries, and they they sometimes will burn. A, burn a fire and they put lots of marigolds and bananas and bread and uh, and they decorate and clean up all they clean up the cemetery yeah that's cool yeah they, and and the, and the perspective of that is very positive it's oh not, yes uh, yes it's not suffering it's not crying the same in mapuche in, in a uh, culture they they celebrate they 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 have speeches about how great the that person were, and they eat and they drink, and it's a very different worldview. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. What did, did you call it, Mapuche? Yeah, Mapuche. Sorry, sorry, Johnny. I, I didn't told you. Mapuche is a is a local tribe that in my country Chile we we had, and and I I talk about uh, them because. Uh, they are a different culture uh, in here. Obviously, in an Occidental culture, we have a, another perspective about death with with suffering, with uh, ceremonies, you know, with the the dead person. But it's interesting to see the different perspectives in there. They are Mapuches. And uh, do they use ayahuasca? No, but they had similar similar ceremonial. Uh, liquids and, and and rituals. They had something called mudai that is not. Um, it, it's kind of similar of ayahuasca, but it has also the the um, the function of just being drunk. It, it's a some beverage, uh, alcoholic beverage that they took, but they also use it as a ritual. Yeah, I've heard the name before, but thank you yeah. for uh, for putting together more of that for me. <laughs> Welcome. There are a couple of different um, holidays uh, here that are similar to Dios Duam Muerte. Um, there's one where you are expected to go visit your relatives' graves and clean them and um, put flowers or whatever is expected of the cleaning of graves and just basically honor your ancestors. There's sort of an ancestral day. That's a holiday, a Chinese holiday. And then there's another thing that might be still happening now. It happens in, uh, sort of the very end of summer beginning of fall. That's called the hungry ghost festival and the hungry ghost festival. Everyone burns things to their rest relatives. And there's a very cool practice here of, um, giving to the dead and you you take paper versions kind of like um effigies of different things and you burn them and the idea is that then they go 
to whoever it is that you're praying to. So uh, everyone takes paper money and actually call it hell money. And they burn this paper money, and when they burn the money, the belief is that that money, that this paper money, this sort of fake fake money, uh, made of a, like a tracing paper material, then goes to the people who've passed over. And when they die, uh, and when they're cremated, at the crematorium, there's a very large flame where they'll burn all sorts of effigies to the person who died from uh, a paper Mercedes-Benz to a paper uh, Mahjong table with full of people playing the game to a paper mansion to all, all the things that that person liked in life they make a paper version of and they burn it in a big fire and while they're burning it in the fire the family will yell things into the fire messages you know take take this remember us that kind of stuff um, it's very cool and then during the hungry oh, hungry hungry ghost festival people everyone has sort of their own little red burning pot thing and they put it outside uh, their building and so you if you walk around Hong Kong you you see these strange little pots with uh, things written on them and things burning in them at around dusk time because they're they're burning them to their ancestors especially if they've recently died nice and they also there's yeah. a there's a wonderful uh, if you go around to uh, traditional restaurants in the window they always have uh, the ducks hanging and the the meat hanging in the window and the the meat uh, gets sort of a, a sweaty sheen to it you know what I mean because it's yeah. like a roasted uh, sure type thing and the uh, the belief is that during this hungry ghost festival. Uh, the spirits are more uh, active and out amongst the world, and that that sweat on the the ducks and the meat that's hanging in the windows is from all the ghosts licking it. It's <laughs> kind of a gruesome, gruesome image. Oh, really? That's what that is? Great, thanks. Great. Yeah, and, uh, and in Thailand, uh, they have... Uh, the little spirit houses out front of everywhere from the, the the hotels and people's private residences. You seen the spirit houses in Thailand? Are these like uh, like little um, altars made into little alcoves at the front of the doorway? Yeah, but it's, but it looks like a, it's a three dimensional little house, and it's uh, and it's, it's almost like a little birdhouse that. But it doesn't sit up high. It sits a uh, about you know head height or chest height. Sometimes a little bit oh, high. Okay, I, I have seen this, but I did not know what it was. Yeah, and then when they get old, and uh, <clears throat> if they get old and they they're not looking too good, then they they will throw them into a, a, a like a heap, like a like a dump. They have a place where they dump them all, and. Uh, and they would replace it with a, a newer one. But I remember driving a motor scooter around uh, Chiang Mai, and all of a sudden I found this old tree. It was The tree looked like it was probably a thousand years old. I mean, this tree was amazing. It had this incredible root system. And it was, it was littered with these old spirit houses all around the bottom of it. They were all just falling apart and and... That was the place. I guess that was the tree that uh, that 
where the spirits you, where home. you left your old spirit houses. That's cool. Yeah. <clears throat> For the abandoned abandoned spirits. Stuart, and a question about that story that you said recently. Mm-hmm. Modern uh, modern persons, uh, young people, know this tradition, or or or, and, and they take it as a as an older generation, or they they just take it as a tradition or silly thing. No, it's a very active tradition. Um, I would say that probably it's usually older people you see doing it. But um, I have seen I've seen full families. Uh, I used to live right next to the crematorium, so I've seen <laughs> I've seen a lot of of people yelling at the bonfire that's on the side of the building. Yeah. Um, and it's full. You know, it's everybody in the family. And it the the burning. Uh, they, I mean, even in a high end shop on the street, there will be they will put out a little red thing and burn. Uh, paper edit and I've seen you know the the girl who's working at a, a boutique shop out there putting paper in the it's it, everybody does it it's a sort of part of the culture <laughs> okay okay and, and now that you mentioned crematory uh, coincidentally I, last week I was talking with a friend of mine and I don't know if in Hong Kong or or in other places they, they had this tradition very strange tradition that is called a, a product that is called a human oil. Have you heard about that? No. It's, it's very creepy in a manner. Um, I asked my grandfather if he knew it, and he knew it. And it was an old tradition, at least in my country, the 50s, the 60s. Now it's banned. Now you can't do it. In, in the crematories, they burn the, the body of the person, but keep the the, the fat of the person. Right. And apparently the fat, when it's treated as a cream, has healing properties. And mm. they sell the the cream, the oil, the human oil, in normal jars for normal people. It was just something very common. And my grandfather used it. <laughs> and it's kind of disturbing. But now you can go to a crematory and ask about it. And you will receive answers like no 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 don't don't come back no go go away and others <laughs> will say okay okay come back to noon and I will have something for you so right. it's, it's it's a very dark business it's a hushed practice now so, so yeah, uh, yeah. how the do you know the process of how they extract the oil no no I I, I didn't investigate that <laughs> deep, but but I, 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 they, I don't know. I wonder if they carve it from the person or if they, uh, <laughs> when the body is just heating up, the body starts to drip oil. I yeah, wonder. I don't know. And, and it was funny. I, I did a little investigation about it. I asked a few persons and I asked the persons if they knew what is human oil. And they said, yeah, yeah, it's a cream that uh, heals you different wounds. And, and uh, I asked them. Do you know why it's called human oil? And they told me because it's for humans. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't said, know no. the origin. Yeah, and I said no. It was made by humans. What? And <laughs> from humans, and and it was very funny, but disturbing. You will find interesting things in the market um, around Asia that 
may or may not exist. There was a period of time where people were, they were making some sort of cream for women with a, a, aborted fetuses in China that, <laughs> that was, went, you know, got a lot of crazy press of, of astonished, oh my God, I can't believe people are doing that. There, you can actually <laughs> find a cream made from the placenta, like a placenta yeah. cream around. Yeah. Um, so we still do versions of that kind of thing. As odd as it is. In Kathmandu, when when I went to Kathmandu, one of the first places I stopped was what they call Bagat, where they where they burn the bodies and the the sadhus that are there, these holy men, they go down and they, uh, you know, some of them will, will wade in the in the waters there, and they'll find a they'll find a, the top of a skull and they use that as a pot, and and the purpose of the of them being there, they hang around there to help. <clears throat> the spirits leave the bodies and they say prayers for the dead people the uh <clears throat> the the sadhus <clears throat> they also smoke a lot of ganja too <clears throat> but but they would uh, also take the the ashes from the river and they smear them all over their bodies and yeah if you if you ever look at the f- photos from the kumbha mela where yeah. you can see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds Maybe even thousands of these uh, sadhus all together, all naked, smeared with with uh, human ash, uh, and sometimes it's ash from sacred fires that they use. Um, but yeah, they they dedicate their lives to helping the the spirits leave or leave this existence and. Follow the blue light. <laughs> I see. Yeah, one of the interesting things, uh, my friend who has the has the collection in uh, in Europe, who has the collection of all these skulls, he showed me a skull of a Tibetan monk, and he was he was telling me he had a few of these. They're Tibetan skulls, and the fissures on top of the head, or the sutures, you know. Yeah, where they where the head uh, after you're cut to a certain age. When, when you're born, you have the the soft spots, and it grows together. Is that what you're talking right. about? Right. Yeah. Right. And then there's the jagged line that goes uh, uh, goes across uh, horizontally and diagonally yeah. on the top. There's there's different sections or plates that all come together. And most skulls, you can still see the lines, and uh, there's there's a little bit of space in the lines mm-hmm. because the the skull is movable and. Uh, there's there's a type of uh, massage work that's craniosacral that they do still today and uh, where they m- can manipulate and move the skull a little bit. Anyway, with uh, these Tibetan skulls, the the line on the top of the head would melt away, and it it would be, it would be there's no sutures there at all. And he was saying that that only exists in the uh, Tibetan monks, and we were trying to figure this out. And, and if it's because they uh, they meditate at high altitude, and uh, or is it because they do a lot of headstands? Um, why why would that be? Do they yeah, do a lot of headstands? <clears throat> I don't know. Hmm. There, I've heard, heard of how- this. Um, I've also heard of this existing in one of those uh, ancient alien shows. They found these skulls in, 
I have to look it up. I don't remember exact somewhere in Europe um, where there were, maybe it was in Turkey, but there were a whole bunch of skulls that had the elongated uh, sort of shape to them. You know, the right, uh, the alien looking shape, but they also did not have the sutures oh. in them. And they, that was thought to be unheard of. Hmm. Um, I, I'll find the episode and, and uh, put it on the website. People can look at that. But yeah, that's yeah. cool. I, I would imagine that vibration could could cause such changes that uh, the ohm might be able to do that. Um, I know that you know your skull does expand and contract, so that it would that the bone would uh, grow back if you've been doing it since you maybe maybe if you're doing such things at a young age, it becomes more possible because your skull is you know. There's a, there is a soft spot and it does grow at a young age. So if you are creating that vibration at a young age, that I mean I'm just guessing. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe they prepare the baby to be a monk. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm I know that they do just to, to to many. Yeah, maybe they massage the the skull, or maybe they did something. Yeah, we, th- we thought of that too. We were thinking, you know, maybe is it massage or is it some kind of topical cream that they put on their head um, that they massage into the scalp or... Yeah, may- maybe they use human oil. <laughs> yeah, <so they're laughs> human oil, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. In Hong Kong, um, they don't... No one... Everyone who dies uh, is cremated because there's not enough space to bury anyone anymore. Are there still cemetery plots in there in Hong Kong as well? There are, but they're all they're all used. <laughs> well, and and does somebody have to pay for that the real estate there to upkeep that? Does the I family? I don't have- know how that works. I'm, they, <laughs> there must be something in existence. They they people do still have um, they do still have the remains put in in cemetery plots as well i mean just their their um burned you know cremated remains but full body burial is there's not enough space for it so they don't do it anymore i think that's something that's uh very important that people should know about is that if people want to have open coffin open casket you know uh funerals one of the things that happens when when someone dies is almost I mean, within hours, at least in the U.S., when someone dies in a uh, in an old folks home, the the mortician comes in, takes takes the body back to the to the mortuary to the to the mortuary, and they have a stainless steel pipe that's a couple feet long, and it has a a forty five degree angle cut on one end of it that's very sharpened, and they insert it underneath the navel and they jab it in and they suck out all the organs that just goes into the sewage <clears throat> yeah with no, with no respect i mean in the way that the way that the egyptians the Egyptians were very respectful of taking the organs and separating them and putting them into different uh, canisters, yeah. Jars and stone urns, and they would keep them all with uh, the body. Yeah, so that's kind of fascinating that that, that gets done. The Tibetan, I think the Tibetans really uh, have, and probably the Mongolians too. You know, they're 
early tribes, they um, they probably had it figured out pretty well, is my guess. Uh, you know, as far as communicating with though those who uh, had left. Oh, it just reminded me myself of uh, Daniel P. Mannix, who wrote the book uh, Memoirs of a Sword Swallower, and uh, also wrote. Uh, the Fox and the Hound. He wrote a book called Those About to Die. Good book. Is, yeah, interesting. Uh, he, has, he had a great style of writing. Fox and the Hound sounds familiar. Yeah, The Fox and the Hound. Disney made it into a, a yeah. movie. Yeah, okay, good. He I also wrote a sure book if it was the same one, but yeah, great. Yep, yep, same guy. He Memoirs of a Sword Swallow, which was rewritten under the title of Step Right Up. Great writer, um... He did a book called A Sporting Chance, all about uh, people hunting animals with other animals as well. But uh, I used to go visit him in, outside of Philadelphia where he lived. But yeah, the hell, and then the Hellfire, he did a book called The Hellfire Club, which is fascinating. And, and you know, the, the catacombs in Paris, have you ever been in the catacombs in Paris? Not, not, I've not been in, no, <laughs> I know what, what you're talking about. Yeah, that's another fascinating place with uh, a lot of lots of bones and um, altars underground. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting to me in the Christian uh, faith that there are so many different ways of dealing with the dead. Because I think the core message um, is that the body should be buried intact, and that at Judgment Day, that the physical body will rise again. And go to heaven or wherever. Um, which, for most of my uh, upbringing, I, I thought that the concept of life after death was a, was more of a Greek one, like a, like a spirit, which is more my model that I see. Um, sure. But it wasn't until my sister, who is a priest, was talking to me about that no no the the christian version is actually that the full body at judgment day will go will rise like a zombie to me i mean yeah yeah <laughs> um and that's why that's why certain uh if you see like um i think michelangelo where he's uh buried i might be thinking of the wrong famous artist of the past but there's a famous uh artist who's buried in a particular place in florence so that when he rises up on Judgment Day, the first thing he will see is the dome of the cathedral. You know that that's he he planned where he was going to bury because that's strongly what he believed or you know, what he said. Um, but we've gone away from that. That's not the way it's viewed anymore. And if if it was viewed that way, I wouldn't think that you would have bones created into an underground structure to. Uh, to keep a body I don't know there's, there's a lot of things that I've seen that seem to be like well that doesn't that doesn't make sense in terms of what I've been told yeah yeah the thing is that that message about uh, the rising in the judgment day comes from the revelation the book of revelation and there's uh, always different perspectives about how metaphorical the texts are right so, so some Christians uh, take all completely literal, and they they believe about the monster with seven heads. It's not a uh, a concept or a metaphor; rather, it's a real one. And you know, and this, the same for this. Maybe maybe the revelations is not uh, a, a literal 
meaning rather if a body lacks uh, an organ uh, at, at the end of the judgment day they will rise without any problem maybe it will be another body you know because there are some Christians that support uh, the the how do you call this the when, when you give an organ after you death uh, donoring Do- donor yeah 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 so in a manner you should think carefully that that is uh, against the, the 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 bible teachings but maybe it's metaphorical right of course yeah like how about in haiti that with in the haitians you know they, with voodoo that sounds sounds more like that like <laughs> coming up coming back to life bodies coming back to life yeah 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 it is very zombie zombie feeling to me <laughs> i'm amazed at how popular zombies are these days right yeah zombies are very popular in the last few years yeah <laughs> mystery of the week the mystery of this week is there's an article been going around uh from the bbc about uh, a fant a f- <laughs> a fantasia i believe a yeah. fantasia a hard to say condition and it's a condition that people have um that they cannot visualize in their mind's eye they lack the ability to uh visualize things in their mind which is mind-boggling to me because i I live my life visualizing things in my mind's eye. It's how we remember better is by visualization. Um, I have met people who have difficulty seeing things in their minds. And um, I wonder if training in the arts and visual fields uh, and fields of expression makes us better at doing that. I'm not sure about that, but it'd be an interesting thing for someone to research. Uh, But apparently there are people out there who cannot visualize in their mind's eye and when i saw this thread on facebook being shared uh there's a test you take the aphantasia test people were responding oh my god i didn't know that other people really could see things in their mind's eye it was a paradox for them because they didn't even realize it was possible they even though they heard people say things visualize this in your mind they thought it was just a sort of figure of speech um, what is your experience with uh, with this, this article, uh, Pablo? Well, as you said, um, I know some persons that had a lot of difficulties to focus uh, when someone is asked to imagine something and to visualize something with all their uh, mind senses in a manner in which you can guide, for example, to someone to to hear something or to smell something, you know to create visual visual imaginary but for me it's mind-blowing that this idea of not having imagination is so recent and and the investigation is is so is so modern because i think that so many people have this uh, this this situation in their minds that well something uh, uh, I don't think that um, I don't think that it's um, very important to to know a concept because there's already a, a lot of people uh, with this condition. As a matter of fact, one in fifty persons, approximately, has this right. this condition, and it's kind of important to conceptualize it. But uh, 
the most mind blowing thing is that, as you said, the the the, the attention that has now, and a lot of people say, okay, I am not the only one. Right, and they see that they're part of of, uh, of a community, and they they don't feel as alone. Or, yeah, that is very good that it's out there and um, it's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that, that helps in the in the. There's a in professor the in this article, Professor Zeman, and it says he's adamant that aphantasia is not a disorder. Yeah, it says it may affect up to one in fifty people but he thinks it makes quite an important difference to their experience of life because many of us spend our lives with imagery hovering somewhere in the mind's eye, which we inspect from time to time. It is a yeah. variability of human experience, yet some people don't have this. Yeah, yeah. And, and what about you, Stuart, as, a, as an artist who can draw very beautiful things? How is your Thanks. imagination in that, in that thing? I was at a meditation group recently, um, about a month ago, uh, meditation and hypnosis group sort of thing. And there was a woman there who had a hard time getting into the right frame of mind for things. And I asked her um, to picture something in her mind's eye. And she said, um, I have a hard time doing that. I don't, I'm not very good at that. And, I, and that's the first time I'd ever experienced somebody who said that kind of that, that that was their reaction. I imagine that she might have this condition, or not not <laughs> not condition. Uh, she might be a person who has a fantasia, um, because to me, I was astonished, and I didn't think about. Uh, I I never consider that people other people couldn't do that. Yeah. To me, it's very um, common, and and uh, it's. Um, I don't know that I'm. I would be better at it than other people, but I I can picture people very clearly in my their faces very clear in my my mind. I can, I but I'm trained to be able to imagine things and draw them, and uh, and over yeah. many years I think if you train to do that and and I would wonder if um, you had this condition if it would improve your ability to or or give you some ability to be able to imagine and picture things in your mind if you took courses in uh in drawing because there's so much of it that you have to use your your mind and your imagination for yeah exactly and for that reason i ask you because for me personally i feel a little bit uh close to the affectation thing because i can create an image in my mind but for example faces uh are kind of difficult for me uh, right. at, at, at some times uh, at some times I don't think that I have a fantasy I have um, a good imagination in a sense but for some situations I feel that it could be better and maybe it's just it's a situation in my life that can be improved via exercises and, well here's and an interesting and... an interesting exercise picture that the living room of the house you grew up in Oh, okay. Mm. Okay, just imagine you're there. Yeah, yeah. And tell me how many windows are in that in that room. One big, big window. Just one one big, big, big one. Okay, so in order to answer that question, you have to imagine and visualize the room and see in some way in your mind's eye the window. Yeah. And that's how we remember things mostly is by yeah. associating to that visual part. Um, yeah. So you, you don't, I mean, you can do it. Yeah, I can do it. 
sometimes for faces, as I said, but I don't think that is a very big thing for me. And you know that um, aphantasia has another type of extreme condition that are the super visualizators. Huh. The, the opposite. Uh, the opposite, yeah. The, the person has, that has a lot of... <laughs> of, uh, of uh, a, a good capacity uh, and the powerful imagination to, to see clearly everything in their mind. Normally artists and, and drawing artists that makes sense and i i I wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily think that that was an innate ability something they were born with so much as a trained ability that over a lot of practice they become better and better at seeing things clearly in their mind yeah yeah and you know that the professor seaman also also said is the leading uh, investigator in this is that some persons have this situation in their lives, but the, also another person uh, has a, had, a, a, for example, an accident uh, regarding the, the brain and, and the head, and, and they report to lose the ability to, to think in image after the accident. Well, that, that would be freaky. Yeah, so, so maybe two sources for, for having a fantasia. Yeah two reasons that's yeah. good so if you if you are a person who does not visualize in your mind you're not alone and look up aphantasia and if you're a person yeah. who is constantly seeing things more like myself uh, you might have the opposite uh, which you called super aphantasia oh hyper 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 aphantasia alright great um, that was the mystery of the week and we'll share a new one each week and now we'll go back to our interview with Johnny Fox have you ever experienced someone uh, who was doing mediumship or being a medium or connecting to the dead or talking to the dead or on a, on a the only, the only experience I have in that kind of person or, or practice um, is watching the John Edwards show, that, the uh, Crossing Over show at some point, and uh, you know, seeing tapes of it and uh, Ouija boards, you know, which I think is a different thing altogether. Um, but it's intriguing that to me that at one point there was a there was a world of spiritism and spiritualism people believing in in this as a part of their religion uh, that those people do still exist to a certain degree and and that it has survived to a certain degree but um that also has been killed off a lot but i think in other cultures there still are people who talk to the dead oh yeah yeah definitely and i mean there's people that still i mean they talk to the these these gods and goddesses, uh, sure, Isis and Horus and. Well, yeah. I met a I met a um, a German Viking shaman who talked to Thor and Freya and the, the same. We had the same sort of relationship sure. with gods as a ritualistic practice. Sure, why not? I agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have you seen the show Medium by? Uh, uh, Big woman, big, big blonde woman. 
Uh, I, you know, I've only, I've seen reports of it from like, uh, like skeptic Randy people, but, uh, yeah, yeah. but I don't, yeah, I, because, haven't, I haven't actually seen the show. Yeah. Because you mentioned the, um, the John Edwards one and, and as you said, it's called the John Edwards show, something like that. Like, but you understand in a manner that it's a show, right? But in this program, the, the, the woman, the medium is like a real world, real life medium. She, she is walking on the street. She see a man and she start to say, "Okay, I can see your grandfather." Uh, and it's blah, blah, done blah. on it's done on the street. Yeah, yeah, it's very oh, like the lame stuff. <laughs> That's interesting. John Edward was not done as a show. It was, I mean, it was a, it was like a talk show, but it was done very yeah, yeah. earnestly as. Uh, here's a man who's a medium who has an ability to contact the dead and talk to your relatives. And that's how yeah, it was yeah. presented. And the first time I saw it, I didn't I didn't know existed for a long time because uh, I didn't watch a lot of TV, um, more movies, you know. But I didn't watch sort of syndicated television. And I had this roommate after college in New York when I first moved to New York, who was watching the John Edwards show, and I was like, this is fascinating. But then I found out that her mother was. You know, raised her in a spiritualist church, and she actually came from that background. and And her response to it was, "Oh yeah, he's very good. He's you know powerful medium." Um, and I had to respect that, even though it made me very skeptical. Uh, but the show showed a lot of really good <laughs> hits. Yeah, yeah, but but you said it's done in a in a talk show environment, so you have cameras. You yeah, have exactly. Studio, you know. Yeah, but but this this one that I told you the the medium uh, woman is kind of different flavor and is more controversial in a manner because right she's a normal woman that walks on the street and can see your grandfather. So she's approaching people without a, as far as you can tell, without a prior arrangement. Yeah, sure, but there are like segments. There are yeah. segments in which. She was uh, walking, um, as I told you. But there are also, for example, clients that the, approach the program and they meet in a room and they do the mediumship. And they have a different segment. Okay. Johnny, have you ever experienced these kinds of things? Um, yeah... I mean, I've I've heard of people doing these kind of things, and I've never been really drawn to them because I think that I feel like I it's a, it's a very subtle thing that I can experience on my own if and and I'm better off experiencing it on my own yeah. as opposed to having somebody else give me their interpretation of it because it's such a subtle thing. Uh, I, I think know, that's I, very well put. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, and and if to, to have somebody else, to have somebody else telling me or uh, explaining it to me, I feel like I'm getting part of their interpretation. Where I I think I'm better off just having my own sure. subtle experience. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, sometimes you know I'll sit, you know, sitting and look, you know, gazing in a fire um, is sometimes really helpful and, and and like you're saying before you know like doing the burning money um the hindus sometimes they burn prayers or you you, you write down what you want to get rid of or yeah. write down off offerings that you want to send up to 
those who have departed, you know, and I, yeah, I, the whole thing with the money, I, I love that with the, with the paper, yeah. the Asians, yeah, the Asians and the Mongolians, I mean, that, that, that's like a, that's a very old race of people that goes way, way, way back. Those, those things go way, way back. An interesting thing about mediumship that happens a few years ago in my country. Yeah. It was a, a TV program, a local TV program about an appearing medium, a, a guy, and, and he was very stylish, very young, very cutting edge, you know. And then a few months during the program, it, it was still live and, and, and giving episodes. They revealed the, the method that he used, it, that it was basically a, a pre-show type of thing. And... So he would, um, he would arrange it with people beforehand and get information from them before he yeah, revealed it. Yeah, and, and he was just acting, try, pretending to pick up different names and accidents and and different things. And, and it was interesting to, to see him because the, the episodes just went okay after the, the reveal and people still believe in him. So the, the reveal and the the telling of the secrets, they not damage too much the program and the reputation of him. Hmm. Well, yeah, that makes, I, I, I see that happening a lot of different places where people, um, reveal something as false, but the people that believe don't accept that as the true story. So I'm not that surprised, mm-hmm. but who, who was yeah. it that revealed what his secrets were? Yeah. <clears throat> kind of interesting. What, it, it was another channel <laughs> because the the it was a ratings national, game. Yeah, yeah. National TV in here in Chile had the program, and another channel unmasked the secrets of the medium. You know? Right. So it was basically a rating thing. Okay. Yeah, he was doing this basically as a cold rating, huh? Yeah, yeah. He he was doing the the acting of connecting with the with the death and, and contacting the, the relatives and and it was very shocking that the persons on the on the studio and on the living room it was treated as a living room were very shocked the crying and and very happy to be connected. And that's the thing in a mediumship you, you have that type of emotion. Fear, sadness, but overall uh, joy. The people have a, a, a joyful experience for that. Hold, hold on just a second because whatever is going on and whoever's oh, water or I don't know it's really when people coming. have such a when people have a strong desire to want to connect they believe they believe they're connected and uh, sure they'll get a it's it's very common for people to get emotional which can be positive or negative it can go either way yeah exactly. yeah yeah, but it's so often it's done in a manipulative way for the person's ego. Yeah. I think it's a thing that in the the world of entertainment should be avoided. There's 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 no need to talk to your dead relatives. Or somebody else's. Yeah, or somebody else's, exactly. Well, I don't know. Talk, talk to your own, sure. But but uh, to, to connect with someone else's dead relatives in, in an entertainment is just sort of uh, in uh, poor taste as far as I'm concerned. I was yeah. preparing my Q&A with, with my dead relative, but okay, I will take your advice. You were doing what? <laughs> I, I, I was preparing my Q&A with, uh, with my dead grandfather, but 
I would well, then you're talking face. to your own your own dead relative. That's fine. Um, there's a uh, <laughs> I like uh, in terms of talking to the dead. Um, I confer with lots of famous dead people in terms of um, when I'm studying uh, a new style of drawing or or art, and I go back and look at the people who I'm most influenced with, uh, there is a sense of conferring and communicating with that person or sort of meditating to asking them that question uh, or relating to them that I go through that is very helpful, even though I'm not necessarily thinking that they're consciously receiving that or that there's a definite direct relation there. Focusing on someone who has passed on, which could be your own family or it could be someone in history uh, can be helpful to a creative process uh, Luke Germain talks about this in his uh, creations uh, in his writing it, that he picks uh, somebody who he can have a conversation with about what he's working on who he believes is the sort of best in that field who may be deceased and he has a sort of meditative process of talking to that person and what you do in that instance is you create sort of an idealized version of that person and it's sort of a it's sort of a writing process it's a creative process very interesting at the end in a pragmatic manner you are taking the role of that person uh, sure and thinking like him right but they become a crea- they become a, a character yeah yeah interesting you know, you hear a lot of people who, who in some way, uh, they pray to their dead grandfather or or some dead relative, and they're asking for advice from that person. And in a sense, I think what they're what is happening is that they create a character of that person in their mind that becomes an idealized version that is helpful for them to make a decision or or to change in their own life. Yeah, you know, I still believe that you know everything's energy. It's all just energy and. Whatever we choose to give our energy to, um, if we believe that energy communicates with us, it does. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that too. I yeah. I, I do agree, I do agree that everything is energy, and I do think that that however you want to characterize it, the process of passing into a different form is just a change of energy. Yeah, and I, as far as as far as I mean, with Catholicism and uh, Christianity teachings. There's, there's so much of Christianity teachings that I kind of don't think that Christ would have would have taught things that way. <laughs> you know, it's more, it's more of like the church manipulating people using fear and uh, as a manipulative tool to keep people, you know, sure doing yeah. whatever they want them to do for their community, for their whatever it is, you know. Yeah. However, they want to manipulate people. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read a theologist some time ago that said basically that Jesus did, did not come to the world to create Christianity. He, he creates a new connection with God through love and not through loss and, and different punishments. But we as humans take the teachings and start to create a religion. Sure. And it's even questionable whether or not he was a real person. So, Yeah, for sure. There's a lot going on there. And he sure didn't look the way that 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 the Americans have looking. <laughs> yeah, green eyes, blonde hair, beautiful looking, white skin. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Light brown beard. 
handsome guy, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I want to know who painted that one image that is the widely used image of Jesus that's normally in a little oval frame, and you find it in most Protestant families' houses somewhere. Come on, you can find that out. Yeah, I, I'm going to look that up. That Because that's the image that pops in my head. It's not... Uh, Ask those Freemason guys. They know. Yeah, they do. <laughs> yeah, the imagery that the, the imagery that they give people, and and Santa Claus is another one. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's Coca Cola. That's the what? The modern Santa Claus, the red Santa Claus, is a Coca Cola creation. He was created by uh, by the advertising agents of Coca Cola, and I, I uh, think I think in the thirties or the forties. Red and white. Yeah. <laughs> Red and white. Before that, he was green. He was more yeah. of an evergreen image, more of a, a Germanic uh, winter spirit. More like a green man character? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. he drank too much Coca-Cola for that reason. Cheese, he's so fat. <laughs> Yeah, the green man just wasn't selling enough Coca-Cola for them. That's true. <laughs> he, he was selling Sprite. That's the problem. Oh, man, it's so sad how many people are addicted to Coke, that uh, Diet Coke nowadays. And Oh, that stuff's evil. It is. They call Diet it Coke Light here. Oh, it's so bad. It's, it's so sad. You see, people, so many obese people are just addicted to it. Can't give it up. The aspartame just messes them up. But, hey, the pharmaceutical companies love it. That is on my list of things I can't have uh, with uh, a history of epileptic seizures. Uh, fake, ah, fake, fake sugars is not allowed. It's, it's a, I, I, and I've met people who went through a period of having seizures that was all due to NutraSweet or aspartame. The and you think that's maybe why, you're, why you, you developed? No, I don't think. I, I had a malformation in my brain. It's not the cause, but it's something that could, could re-trigger it. Or, or, you know, it's, there's like a, I was told in the hospital at one point that, you know, avoid all this stuff here. Don't, don't do flashing lights. Don't drink wine. That seemed to be a problem for you. you don't, don't do fake sugar in, you know, so. Wine uh, with sulfates in it? Or, yeah, uh, I think that's the idea, but I avoid all of them. Yeah. You drink any liquor at all? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do drink uh, whiskey and beers, but, but I don't. Uh, Vodka. I don't do wine. Actually, just don't like vodka that much. Spirits, spirits, and spirits. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Are they friendly spirits? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> remember, remember Boris? Did, did you ever watch Bullwinkle? Yes. Eeny beeny, chili beeny. The spirits are about to speak. Are they friendly spirits? <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go look that up. Oh, man, I just saw a great one about this guy who was with Tony Robbins is doing this talk with a black guy who wants to be a public speaker, but he can't because he's got a horrible stuttering pattern. And he says, go back and go back and go back to where you first started this, this speaking. He says, oh, the stuttering. He says, oh, my parents were, were fighting we were, when I was a kid. He says, I was a child, very young, three years old, two years, three years old. He says, and, and then uh, and then. And then I would go in the, I would be so sad and crying and distraught. And then I'd go in the room and I'd watch television and I'd watch Rocky and Bullwinkle. And whenever Bullwinkle would get in trouble, 
he would say, Rocky, help, uh, help. Yeah. And and so he, the guy was able to. Rocky. Yeah. So And then he would and then Rocky would come and help him and it would, everything would be OK. And so that's how this guy developed his stuttering pattern. And then so the guy goes back and he gets him to relive it a few times. And all of a sudden, bam, the, the guy's stuttering, stuttering is gone. I mean, that's fantastic. 35, 40 years of stuttering, all of a sudden, wham, it's gone. And then the guy comes out and, and of course, uh, Tony Robbins, he he recorded all the stuff that happened while he's asking the guy to relive this and he's bringing the guy back. And so he shows this whole uh, video of it. And then the guy comes out and gives a speech to a big group of people. And the guy gives this dynamic uh, speech with no stuttering at all and gets this huge standing ovation and the sure. guy's in tears and uh he's a, the guy's a great public speaker now nice did you know that james earl jones has a stutter mm-hmm. and he only speaks clearly when he is uh speaking a script <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah that, hap- not- that happens to a friend of mine just a few days ago i was looking at him doing a role in a, a small sketch mm-hmm and he didn't have any kind of stutter. It was a fantastic thing. Because he knew what he was going to say already. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I was fascinated when I found that out. I had a friend who uh, was an actor in high school and went to a retreat type thing where James Earl Jones was there. And when he came back, he said, it was amazing. James Earl Jones is a thick stutter, but when he speaks the script, he speaks clearly. I had no idea. Tony amazing. Robbins is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing the way he uh, got uh, got started in that whole thing. I was in Boulder when he was in his early twenties when he used to first come through Boulder with uh, the 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 firewalk, and he would play Eye of the Tiger while people were walking across the the hot coals. Oh wow! But, but he had met this woman who had uh, he fell in love with this woman who was uh, a mother of three or four children, and she had. Uh, her husband had left her and wasn't helping her at all. And she, he said, I'll figure out some way to raise your kids. And I'm, and, uh, and he did. Cool. I would love to meet him someday. Yeah. He and someone was telling me he and, uh, a couple other people, uh, big movers, like in, in that same uh, circle as him, all got together and they went to see uh, Amma. Uh, Amma, the uh, hugging saint of India from Kerala, India. And she's done so. She's done so much to help <clears throat> to help people with you know, just giving money away. And she takes with one hand and gives with the other hand. And uh, she's people say that she hasn't slept in thirty five, forty years that she's been doing this. Um, they they do a ceremony on her feet every time she walks in the room. They chant. They she does the ceremony on the water. She blesses the water. They hand the water out. They get donations from people. They take the donations. They give the donations to help. Uh, she's educating a lot of young girls. She has a college in uh, in India where they're providing free education for kids that can't go to school and. She built 4,600 houses for the little houses for the peop- survivors of the tsunami. And uh, wow. she gave a million bucks. She was the first person to come up and give a million dollars to Katrina support. 
And yeah, she just keeps giving it away. I I don't know of her. Alma, A L M A or Alma A H A M M A A M M A. Okay. A double M A. And if you go A M M A dot O R G, you'll see all about her. And she travels around. I've I've uh, I've been to her programs several times. And if you ever get a chance to go, uh, make sure you stay to the very very end. Go the last the last day that she hugs people. And make sure you stay to the very, very end before she leaves. The very end is, is a is an amazing uh, moment. After she's hugged everybody, she uh, she gets up and she throws rose petals all over everybody. But I, every time I've been there and done that, I've been like energized for the next couple of weeks. I just to have more energy. Nice. Yeah, and she's in Kerala, India. Yeah, when I look at her, it's I I kind of see her as the the embodiment of Kali. She is, uh, and she has a Kali temple in her place in uh, Kerala. Yeah, if you put it, yeah, you can Google her. Yeah, I'll look it up. Ama along with Kali, and, and I'll, I'll share something about it on the the website page that I put this on. Yeah, once I find it. Yeah, you know, and, and you know the the. the uh, the statue of the Nataraj, the uh, the dancing Shiva, mm-hmm. is uh, is is usually a uh, another figure that's underneath the the feet of the dancing Nataraj, and a lot of time with Kali, you see the Shiva is underneath. Shiva surrenders and allows himself. Uh, Kali dances on top of Shiva. Uh-huh. Then, See when you see people when they wear the knot on top of their head, or they uh, they shave their heads like the Hari Krishnas, they shave their heads except for a little small patch in the back. That's um, I forget the name of it, but that's a, a, that's symbolic for growing their hair there so that Kali can grab them by the back of the head and cut their head off. It's an offering. It's like offering the head, offering themselves to Kali. Wow, that's intense. Or it's not if it's a surrender, right? It's the power. It's the power of surrender. It's like, but still intense. <laughs> immortality. Yeah, it's only intense if we see it as intense. If it's if it's if it's a surrender, it's like nothing. It's like fuck. It's just a physical body anyway. Right. Yeah. How about uh, how about uh, Vlad Dracul? He used to put the heads on spikes all over on the. Uh, on spears all over. Do you sure. know the stories? Do you yeah, know the yeah, stories? the Vlad the Impaler. Um, yeah, but that was an intimidation thing. That was a scare the hell out of your enemies thing. Right. Yeah, and then the shrunken heads was another one like that. Um, what yeah. What is the purpose of the sh- shrinking a head? To is well, it to wear it? Well, sometimes yeah, they would wear that. Are uh, a, a a warrior would be told, you know, if, if somebody was encroaching on their property, they would chuck a spear in their direction. And if they didn't take that as a warning and stay away, then they would kill the person. And and then the, the head would come off and then there was wh- whoever was the one who did did the uh, did the killing was their job to prepare their head and they could wear it as a trophy and they would believe that there was some some that believed that um they would they would 
receive the spirit, that spirit of that, that warrior. But then there was other tribes in, uh, the, in, uh, Papua New Guinea, the, I think the shrunk heads too, the Osmot. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, the Osmot did a different style. They, they would prepare skulls, um, but they were headhunters, and the Philippi- there was headhunters in the Philippines as well. Really, but I think there was two different places where they did sh- head head shrinking. The but most of the head, tribe, right? What's that? The Jivarian tribe. Yeah, Hivaro. Yeah, Hivaros. Yeah, Hivaro in uh, Ecuador. But most of the most of the shrunken heads that we see are what were called tourist shrunken heads because a tourist would come and they would offer hundreds of dollars and so instead of not providing the tourist with a shrunken head they would say okay let's get the head of somebody who was recently deceased and they would they would open up the grave and they would cut the head off and then they would take the they would soak the the head and they would prepare a shrunken head for the person, but like probably ninety uh, percent of the shrunken heads that are out there were made for tourists. That's sad. <laughs> Is it? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's only sad if you want to be sad, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it, it made somebody happy, and it it kept the story. I have one that I used to call. I mean, I remember the first time I bought a shrunken head. Prince. It's the only time. I mean, someone gave me one after that, but a guy brought it to me, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking, "Wow, this is a person's head." And I'm looking at it, and I had a little flashlight, and I was looking inside it, and I was thinking, "I want to stick my fingers in there," and but I don't want to stick my fingers in there. So I put a bandana over my hand, and I stuck my fingers in the bandana, and then up into the cavity of the head, uh-huh. and I looked at it over my, and it was over my two fingers, and and it looked like a little hand finger puppet. And, it, and I, as I looked at it, it looked kind of like Prince. And I started, and I started uh, goofing around doing Raspberry Beret. <laughs> and it got such a laugh that I started bringing it with me to performances sometimes in Manhattan. And I would, say, and I would tell people, you know, a hundred, over 100 years after this guy has had his head shrunken, it's still making people laugh. And the people that killed him are long gone. <laughs> Right, this, but this guy's still bringing happiness and laughter to people, and as the you raspberry be the beret singing drunken head. I remember face. seeing, I remember seeing that head in your display at the Fricatorium. You remember seeing it there, yeah? Yeah, I remember you telling me this that it was Prince, or that you know, I remember you making the joke, <laughs> and I remember laughing at it because it does look like Prince. <laughs> I would love to see that. I think you actually yeah. can in some of the video. I think you have it in some of the videos of uh, the Frigatorium that are out there from different shows. Yeah, if you look up on uh, YouTube, there, I think it's uh, if you put in Johnny Fox uh, Frigatorium, I think you'll find it. Okay, I will do it. Cool. Well, I think we should wrap this up. Uh, we've been going on for a long time and uh, we have a lot of great thoughts. Um, but before we do that, uh, for people who listen, Johnny, do you want to g- give like a website or something for people want to know more about you? And we haven't really talked about what you do. You, you, you perform as a 
Sword Swallower and um, magician, magician, storyteller. Yeah, storyteller. I think storyteller is the is the right term. Um, and uh, in in Rinnefe- Sounds Festivals, but also elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah, for the next eight weekends, I'm working at the Maryland Renaissance Festival, Saturdays and Sundays, and that's outside Crownsville or Annapolis, Maryland. And then uh, I just got back from Edinburgh, Scotland, from the Fringe Festival, and I work in Mexico in the the wintertime in the resorts down there. And uh, I have a website, johnnyfox.com, that's a little somewhat under reconstruction right now, but also on a, a Facebook presence. Um, cool. You can find me, find me on YouTube as well. How, how long have you been at the Maryland festival? And this is my 35th year, 35 years. It's amazing. 35 years of the Maryland Renaissance festival. Yeah. Well, cool. And that just ended. Yeah. No, you're good. No, it's just, it's just begun. Just begun. Uh, yep. It runs into the middle of October. Cool. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you for so much uh, for being with us and offering your wisdom on mysteries of passing over or on or however you want to say it. This has been good. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to meet you. Yeah. Me too. Uh, Very good conversation. Thanks, Jordan and Jenny. And how do you two know each other? The internet. Uh huh. How, how did well, we? Well, and mentalism, of course. Yeah, Pablo is an entertainer. He does a mentalism show as well, and we started exchanging ideas uh, through a Facebook group, I think. And uh, I have some of his uh, things that he's written, and I've sent him some of the things that I've made, and that's how we started to just interchange. And then we thought, well, this is cool. Let's uh, make a make a podcast where we talk about. The mysterious things that'll go on in the world, and because uh, we both have some similar interest in that kind of stuff, we are on the other, you know, opposite sides of the globe. So, thought it would be good. Great. So this will this will be uh, uh, available to listen to on. Uh, you'll give me a link. Yeah, I'll give you a link. Uh, MysteriousWorldPodcast.com is the web page, but you can get it off of iTunes. Uh, there. Uh, you know, the podcast section of the iTunes store. It's a free download. You can subscribe to it and then you get each episode pops in. Mysterious world podcast. Dot com. Yeah. Dot com. All right. Or you just go to stuartpalm.com and hit the podcast button on the right side. Good. Have you done this before? Or is this the first one? This is the third one. Third one. It's the third All week. Right. You've done you've done one a week so far. Yep, episode three. We're doing it. We're doing. We're trying to keep to one a week. Oh, very good. Yeah, well, and you're that- you're our first guest. <laughs> the other two are just us rambling on about. Uh, the first one is sort of an introduction. The second one, uh, we talk about black holes, and we talk about uh, what else do we talk about? I don't remember. Oh, machis. Machis. We talked about the Machupe, the the indigenous people of Chile. Yeah. And and shamanism. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Uh, good luck with everything. And thanks, man. Uh, be in have touch. A, have a great day and nice uh, have a great you. festival. Mucho gusto. <laughs> Mucho gusto. Bye bye.
Ciao, ciao. In the last episode, we introduced the mystery competition, and I'm going to extend that again this week. Um, we only had, uh, I think, two entries into the competition, uh, so I want to give more people a chance. And all you have to do to enter this competition is write a personal story of something mysterious and unexplained that happened to you, and send it to us at um, mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail dot com. Or you can go to mysteriousworldpodcast.com and write it in the comments on the blog page or send us a message yeah. through that um, website. But the best way is just to send it to mysteriousworldpodcast at gmail.com. And we will be accepting entries until Monday the 14th of September 2015. So uh, get your entry in before then and you are good to go. We can make it uh, three winners if we get a whole bunch. Um, who will receive? One will receive a pendulum from Pablo, and uh, one or two will receive a deck of cards from me, a deck of uh, Gnostic playing cards, which you can find at stuartpalm.com at the shop. Just hit the shop button once you're there. Um, also, you can find more information about me at stuartpalm.com, and you can find out more information about Pablo at facebook.com slash Pablo Amira, mentalista. That's the word for mentalist. Mentalista. mentalista. And you, how do you spell men, how do you spell mentalista? Don't don't ask me to spell things. M e n t a l i s t e. Yeah, let me try, let, let me try to do it. M e n t a l i s t a. Okay, an a at the end. M e n t a l i s t a. Mentalista. Yeah, Pablo Amira, A-M-I-R-A, Mindelista. Exactly. Cool. Um, and you can also, if you, all you have to do actually to find more information about us is go to mysteriousworldpodcast.com. And then if you click on either of our pictures, there's a little bio you'll get. And uh, I'll put on there uh, Pablo's Facebook link as well. So you'll have that. I think it is on the bottom of your bio. But if it's not, I'll make yeah. sure that we get it on there. So it was great to have him on. It was great to have uh, Johnny Fox, and uh, he's lent a lot of wisdom and uh, given stories of things that we will put on the website, um, more information about. And uh, so uh, that's about all I have to say. <laughs> that was it a lot. It was a great time to, to hear about his stories, about the schools and different things. So yeah. very good first guest in the podcast. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that that worked out. Thank you for joining us at Mysterious World. And next week we will be talking about extraterrestrials and UFOs and UFO experiences and abductions and all the things to do with aliens. So tune in next week and it's good to talk to you again. And uh, you want to say anything else, Pablo? No, have a very nice week and open your eyes because mysteries are everywhere. That they are. Thanks for listening. 